Hi, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. If you've been following the Science in the City blog lately, and I hope you have been, you'll have noticed I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between science and the humanities. Last week, for example, Dr. Christiana Pippard spoke about the importance of ethical and interpretive frameworks for considering data and the results of scientific inquiry. Dr. Piercarlo Valdesolo studies the relation from the other direction. He asks, what can science tell us about people's moral decision-making processes? For this podcast, Dr. Valdesolo joins us from California to talk about his work. Hi, how are you? Good, how's it going? Great, thanks for joining us. So I guess to start off, could you just describe the focus of the work done in your lab, please? Sure. Uh, so I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Claremont McKenna College, and there I'm the director of the MEAT lab, Moral Emotions and Trust. Um, and more or less what we study is the influence of usually emotional states on moral judgments and moral behaviors, how often people cooperate and why they cooperate with one another, why they hurt one another, um, why their judgments of fairness or judgments of um, what's right, morally right in any given situation change. Uh, that's kind of the stuff that we're interested in. Awesome. Could you please give some specific examples? Sure. Uh, so the very first study that I conducted and that was published looked at how you can change people's moral judgments depending on the emotional state that they're in. So this is these well-known um, series of hypothetical dilemmas that moral psychologists and philosophers use. They're called the trolley dilemmas. And um, in these dilemmas, basically, the scenario is that there's this runaway trolley heading down the train tracks. And if, you, if it's left uh, to go on its course, it's going to run over five people who are sort of strapped to the tracks, <laughs> standing at a fork in the tracks next to a large switch. And if you so choose, you can flip the switch and it'll redirect the train onto another set of tracks where there's just one person. And the choice is, should you do this? Should you flip the switch to divert it away from the five towards the one? Most people say yes. Five versus one seems like an easy decision. Something like 80% of people say, yeah, flip that switch. Then there's another uh, similar situation where, again, you've got the runaway train. It's heading down the tracks. It's going to kill five people except now you are standing on a footbridge overlooking the tracks and you're standing next to a large stranger. And the only way to stop that train is to push this large stranger off the footbridge into the path of the oncoming train. <laughs> mass will knock the train off the tracks, saving the five but killing this one individual. So the trade-off's the same, five versus one. But when you ask people this question, uh, you basically see the opposite effect. 80% of people will say, don't do that. That's inappropriate. So in my study, what we did was we used these two dilemmas, and we wanted to test how people's responses to these situations would change depending on the mood that they're in. So our idea was that the reason why people don't like to push uh, the large stranger off the footbridge is not because they have some sort of principled stance against um, killing, necessarily, but it's because they have this very quick, automatic, negative feeling at the thought of harming someone else. And if you can get rid of that feeling, then people are going to be more likely to push. So what we did was we tried to get rid of that negative feeling in people when they were considering this dilemma. 
And we did that by just having them watch a funny video clip before they considered whether or not to do this. And sure enough, when you just give people five minutes of, uh, we show them set and, and um, Saturday Night Live sketch. After they've seen that for five minutes, now they're much more likely to say, it's okay to push that stranger off the footbridge. <laughs> When you talk about the effect of an emotive state on moral decisions, generally neither of those things sound very objective and therefore a little bit difficult to get at through scientific methodology. Um, could you discuss, I guess, how you overcome that challenge? Um, sure. So when moral psychologists study these kinds of questions, we're not so much interested, and we don't really, or most moral psychologists wouldn't really say that we're um, studying objective moral principles or anything like that. We, we try very hard to avoid making any kind of normative claims about what's the right decision, what's the wrong decision, et cetera, et cetera. We are simply interested in what are the processes by which people make these kinds of decisions um, in their own lives, in the real world. And we sort of leave it at that. So in the context of these kinds of hypothetical dilemmas, for example, um, we're not interested in getting people to make any particular kind of decision. We're not interested in uh, claiming that one of the decisions is the appropriate one. We just want to know when real people make these moral judgments, how do they do it? What sorts of methodologies can you use to get at these questions? Um, so there are several different ways that we can ask questions about the processes underlying moral judgments and behavior. So one is the, these kinds of uh, mood state manipulations. Um, another kind of manipulation that we've used is um, something called a, a cognitive load manipulation. And this is um, a paradigm that's been used in social psychology for a while, and the idea is to basically distract people. So if you have um, any kind of hypothesis that relates to um, how much mental effort people need to put into making a moral judgment, so for example, lots of uh, people in moral psych study the importance of self-control in making moral judgments. The idea being that we're often tempted um, by our emotional states to act unfairly or to cheat or to do something wrong or to steal uh, for our own self-interest. And in order to overcome that, we need to exert self-control. We need to really tell ourselves, no, don't do this, this is wrong, this, this is wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And what cognitive load does is it prevents people from doing that. It'll basically sap the cognitive resources that you have um, that you would normally direct towards trying to control these urges and therefore make your urges more likely to influence your behavior. That's really interesting. I would imagine a lot of different types of emotions would count as sufficiently distracting if you felt them strongly enough, or I guess if the stimuli that caused those emotions or evoked them to begin with were very pressing? Because I would think that stress would, you know, kind of be an obvious, like, oh, I will make poor moral choices because I'm stressed out. But if I were also really excited about something, maybe I'd be distracted also? Yeah, that's right. So the, the difference between um, the, the ways in which emotions can direct our attention and then the ways in which kind of the higher order cognitive um, uh, processes can direct our attention has to do with the automaticity or how fast it happens. So stress is definitely going to influence your moral judgment, but it's going to do it in really quickly, um, almost automatically. And so if you're stressed out, you're going to make a snap decision, um, even when it comes to some sort of important moral judgment. Um, and if you want to temper the influence of stress or temper the influence of any other emotional state on your moral judgments, then you need this other kind of 
of process, this kind of higher order cognitive process, which is all about self-control and about just taking a little bit longer and trying to reason through um, why it is you're doing whatever it is you're doing or considering uh, the particular decision that you're considering. And so cognitive load prevents that kind of uh, process from kicking in. It distracts you in that way. So in general, what sorts of emotions link to what sorts of patterns of moral decision-making in your findings? So I've studied a couple different kinds of emotional states, and they all have to do with, um, they're always called social emotions, so emotions that are evoked in social situations. For example, the first emotion that I studied was jealousy. Um, And in this particular study, we were interested in getting people to experience jealousy in the lab, which was difficult at first, uh, and then seeing how their experience of jealousy related to their tendency to aggress towards others. Um, And as you might imagine, uh, when people get jealous, they get aggressive, even if it's in the context of a simple lab interaction with people that they've only just met. Um, They care about relationships so much that when they feel jealous about even these trivial relationships, they will aggress towards these new people. Um, Other emotional states that I've looked at include compassion, uh, awe, gratitude, all these, all these emotional states that philosophers and scholars of religion have been interested in for a long time and have speculated um, about when it comes to moral judgments and moral behaviors. Um, what I'm trying to do is look at these emotional states and their effects on moral decisions more empirically in the lab and seeing what happens. Um, how do you evoke jealousy in a lab setting? Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting one. So uh, this is actually the first study that I... Um, conducted in graduate school. And the idea was, so, so the basic idea behind uh, evoking jealousy is to create uh, a relationship, some sort of bond between two individuals, and then threaten that relationship with a third party. Right, so this is sort of the prototypical case of um, someone hitting on your boyfriend or girlfriend. That's going to get you jealous. Uh-huh. Now, the challenge to trigger this in the lab is we're not going to use actual boyfriends and girlfriends and try and have you know, someone in the lab hit on a boyfriend or girlfriend. That's a risky proposition. <laughs> so what we wanted to do was to create novel relationships um, between participants in our lab and then try to, tr- tr- uh, try to threaten that. Uh, so I was, um, in, the, in this experimental design, the... Uh, research assistant playing the role of a participant who was supposed to basically flirt with uh, the actual participant. Okay. So someone would come into the lab and I would um, you know, try to be charming, try to act uh, flirtatiously with them, um, and then after five to ten minutes of engaging in this banter and going through a couple experimental tasks together, in would walk a third person who was actually another research assistant in the lab, but the participants didn't know this. And then all of a sudden, my attention starts to get directed towards her instead of the actual participant. So now I'm flirting with this other person, and eventually um, me and this, and this new person, this third person, kind of move across the room together and start just working on our own and basically ignoring the actual participant. So that's how we created, tried to create in the lab um, some kind of novel relationship and then threaten that relationship with the presence of a third party. 
And it worked. It worked. That's really funny. Turns out that it's not too difficult to to uh, get people jealous. <laughs> um, what's your control in an experiment like that? So, um, in this particular study, what we used as a control was um, same sort of things would unfold. I would start to uh, flirt with this individual. In would come the third party, and then I would leave. But this time, I'm, I'm severing the relationship, not because I'm interested in a third party, but because I've realized that I'm late for some other appointment. So everything in the, in the study is the same, except the reason why I no longer have a relationship with the, the participant. In the jealousy condition, it's because now I'm interested in the third party. And in this control condition, it's because um, I just have to leave for, for some neutral reason. <laughs> Interesting. Under what kinds of emotional conditions do people demonstrate the kindest moral judgments or behaviors? So, normally we think of uh, people as compassionate or not. Like you are, you are a kind, caring person, or you're not a kind, caring person. But what we wanted to show in the study was that there are very subtle triggers that can make anyone feel compassion under the right circumstances. So we used this manipulation of synchrony. Um, which is basically having people move in time with one another. Uh, so either clapping with one another. Um, some researchers have uh, participants march with one another. Any kind of coordinated movement um, is a manipulation of synchrony. And what synchrony does is it makes you feel closer to the people that you're moving with. It makes you feel more similar to them, more connected to them. And in the study that, that we conducted, we were speculating that that's really what it takes to feel compassion for someone else. You need to feel that, um, that connection, that sense of um, interpersonal closeness. And if you do, and then you see that this person's in trouble, then you're going to feel compassion for them. So the idea behind the study was simply to manipulate synchronized movement between participants and then have a participant see their partner get wronged in some way and then try to measure how much compassion they felt for this person and how much they helped this person if they were in need. And sure enough, just having people uh, move in synchrony for, we did it for about two minutes in the study, was enough to trigger compassion in our participants. What's the converse of that? Under what emotional circumstances are people the, the worst to each other? Mm, interesting. Um, so there are a couple different, I, I would say that it, it's, it's more important to consider the motivational states that are related to emotions than any emotion itself. So for example, um, anger, obviously, um, it's uh, an emotional state that uh, motivates us to approach others and specifically approach them aggressively. When you're angry, um, you're not going to back off you're going to uh, uh, approach uh, an offender, whoever the target of your anger is, and um, you will be less willing to consider their well-being. Um, other emotional states, uh, something like fear, right, it's sort of the opposite. It's still a negative emotional state, but it's much more of a withdraw emotion. When you're scared, you don't approach what's scaring you. You back off. Um, and you're looking for a way to, to feel protected and safe, and so it has a different pattern of effects on your moral judgments. I don't know if anyone has systematically looked at 
um, which are the kinds of emotional states that um, drive our uh, drive more antisocial behaviors or antisocial judgments. One of your papers that I thought was really interesting suggested that self-interested behavior might have positive ramifications not only for the individual, but also in group-level systems. So lots of times um, in, in recent research, at least in, in um, social psychology, people have emphasized the, uh, the importance of just sort of cooperative spirit, cooperative spirit to group success. Right, so if we help each other, if we cooperate, if we're always compassionate and other interested, this is the way towards collective well-being. And I agree with that, but I don't agree that that's the whole picture. I think in addition to that, you need to have um, a balance of self-interested motives that drive us towards individual success and achievement, um, the fruits of which can be shared through your cooperative spirit. So if you have this kind of balance between um, emotional states that really get you to want to achieve on an individual level, on a self-interested level, that's when these other interested motivations and emotions can really contribute to collective well-being. So to get a little bit more philosophical, I guess, there's been a lot on the, the idea of scientism and whether science is qualified to consider more things that are under the purview of philosophy, like ethics. So I was wondering, since you study moral decision-making scientifically, what do you think the value is of looking at these questions through a scientific lens? I think the value is to um, provide philosophers and people whose job is to think about ethics in that way with more fodder for their philosophizing. I don't see it as my role or um, psychologist's role uh, to do that part of it. I think I agree with um, people who are wary of scientists who start to make normative claims. I think there's definitely value in what we're doing because it can certainly inform the perspectives of people who are in that business. Great. And what are the limits or the particular challenges of exactly the same thing, of looking at these questions through a scientific lens? Um, the biggest challenge that I've faced is try to do, trying to do these studies in ways that are ethical and that treat our participants with respect. I mean, so this, this jealousy paradigm, for example, is, is, can be tough on participants. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe they're being aggressive because you're just messing with them so badly. Right, right, right. I mean, so, so there's, there's definitely negative experiences that need to be evoked in the lab in order to study things like aggression, right? I mean, that's necessarily the case. Um, so that's the biggest challenge, to try and create these phenomena um, as they would exist in the real world, but do so in a way that still respects um, participants. There's been a lot written on like the crisis and confidence of psychology lately, and I was wondering um, what your feelings on that were. So I think that um, first of all, it's totally understandable that there would be a crisis of confidence. There have been lots of high-profile cases of um, not only fraud, but um, inquiries into the kinds of methods and statistics that social scientists use. Um, so uh, for good reason, people are starting to, to question um, what's going on in this field. That said, I mean, I think uh, from my perspective, the issues that are being raised now uh, with uh, social psychologists and, and psychologists more generally are issues that are common to all kinds of sciences. 
and I think the fact that um, it is a, a front page issue for psychology right now means that we will also be um, sort of at the forefront of dealing with these problems. So um, I think it's actually a good thing for the field. I think that this attention will force us to correct these issues and um, in, a, in a couple years we'll start to see these issues pop up in other fields uh, and the same sort of evolution will start to happen in those fields as well. Is there anything that you'd like to add? I, I encourage all your listeners to uh, learn more about social psychology, to specifically get interested in moral psychology. I think it's a, um, a growing field. Uh, I think it's getting a lot of attention over the past couple of years and I think it'll continue to do so. Actually, on that subject, could I ask you to comment on sort of the value to a lay individual about becoming more interested in social psychology? Sure. It seems like it would be a good way to become more self-aware about your own decision-making processes, if nothing else. That's exactly right. I mean, so um, what I try to emphasize in, in my classes whenever I teach social psychology is the point of trying to get at uh, the processes by which people make these, kind, make these kinds of decisions is to sort of gain a third-party perspective on your own decisions. To remove yourself from a given situation, to really understand in as objective a way as you can why you're doing the things you're doing, um, are your behaviors and decisions uh, getting you towards your goals, whatever those goals may be. Um, so I think that's the real value of, of learning about social science. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org. You can also follow us on social media. We're Sci and the City on Twitter and Science and the City on Facebook. Thanks for listening.